0: all right welcome to the special generalist podcast yeah so today i have a guest who is third ranked in ncaa division one men's shot put former wide receiver for my high school team, Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology from the University of Minnesota, and current uh, candidate for Master's in Sports Management from the University of Georgia, and also my best friend. And mainly my objective here is to talk about what this podcast is going towards, what better of a person to interview, and go forward with that than my best friend, who? course knows the way I think and he knows also I know how he thinks and it's in a similar fashion I think is a great first uh, person to interview so the special generalist is a concept I've thought of from reading a book called range right here and more or less the cons of the book is that we live now in a world where yep so he's got the same book more or less we live in a specialized world and in that world reduces you down to what you do and who you are as far as from a singular perspective. And we all know that's not the case. For most instances, we are not just our careers or our, act, our athletic careers, and there's more of a well-rounded scope of people. So again, my objective is to take real world experiences, bring them up to a level of abstraction and kind of talk within that section of people's experiences and who they are and trying to showcase them as in a well-rounded fashion and I, I think john is a great example of this i think from the outside looking in he's this massive dude who <laughs> throws the rock where some people don't know for, for an instance that he is is a exceptionally um, smart and intelligent in, in, a, in a variety of domains and has a lot of insight into helping a lot of his experience with for example, his Division One athletics, but sports management, kinesiology, etc. So, that being said, I'm going to start the the podcast in, in that direction. John, like you, you've had obviously a variety of experiences. You've specialized in, in throwing the shot put, of course, or putting the shot. Yep, I should yep. say. <laughs> and simultaneously, in college, you were learning kinesiology, which is the exercise science. Yep. What benefit? Did learning and, and being coached to throw the shot but biomechanically the, the entire spectrum while simultaneously learning kinesiology
1: yeah so I think I thought it was a huge benefit and actually that's one reason I chose kinesiology I'm definitely I'm interested in uh, sports and exercise science which is what kinesiology is I've always been somebody that's in sports so I thought it was a great direction for me to take my college education but you'd be surprised how many division one athletes that have been an athlete for 10 years, have no idea what to do when they're in a weight room or how training gets organized or any of that stuff. So I thought it was a huge advantage. And as I learned more and more, not only through schooling, but just through interest, watching YouTube videos, reading different articles, doing projects for school, I think it benefited me greatly. I almost say it hurts my coaches in some aspect because I can can see through some of the BS that gets put in programming. But I think they know that I come uh, with good intentions when I challenge them. And ask questions and am there to push training because I'm just trying to optimize my own training to the best of my ability to get as good as possible. And I think studying kinesiology helped me do that greatly. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that, that I think pulls into the exact example I'm talking about where you aren't naive to the fact that you've only done one thing and you're just blindly following your coaches. You're mm-hmm. actually learning analogous things to what they're programming you to do and then, yep. and then actually confronting it in a way that's, it's, Hey, this doesn't, e- even if you are wrong, you're still questioning if it's right.
1: Yeah. And
0: I, I think from an example, we've talked about this before, but through your nagging injuries or whatever you've ever had, I know you're dealing with an elbow injury at the moment right now, yep. but while learning, granted, you're learning at an undergrad level,
1: Yeah. which means you're not an expert by no but, means, Yeah,
0: yeah. And, and you don't claim to be, but. You know, just enough to ask the right questions. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew I was your roommate, and, and through the past, you had nagging injuries in which you had yep. physical therapists, trainers, whoever that would give you exercises or do whatever it may be. How did simultaneously learning about different disciplines, for example, you're in kinesiology, you're in undergrad, so you're getting this broad spectrum of what exercise science is. You're, mm-hmm. you're learning about physical therapy you're learning about athletic training you're learning about chiropractic or wh- whatever the full spectrum yes, is yep. what specifically did you know as you're going through that and, and i want to pose this question to, to people who blindly follow whatever yeah. their discipline is giving them
1: yeah i guess it comes down to experience really for me and a lot of times i actually go through an experience look back at what i previously did and go Oh, i think i found an issue there so i think uh, in terms of just this uh, physical therapy rehabbing injury type thing i'm going to take it back a little bit to where it all started how i've trained and how my mindset has trained as has changed to get me to that point going into college was a big transition for me athletically in many different ways so i was like you said i was a wide receiver in high school so i was a 215 pound guy that had to transition to throw the shot put, which I think if you most people see shot putters, they're these big 300-pound guys. I was not that. And in the process of doing that, I also had to transition from a glide to a spin, so two different techniques in the shot put, which takes tons of repetitions, and it was a really hard learning process for me because it was just so different from how I trained in high school and kind of my mindset in high school. And then you add that with just – what comes with weight? Well, I needed to put on strength as well. So there was a lot of transition that was happening in my athletic life, moving into college. And it quickly made me figure out I need to start working. You know what I mean? There's a big right. gap for me to close if I want to be good at the sport, and which I did. I went to college with the intention of trying to become an All-American and all of this stuff. So
0: yeah, you it's, definitely, it, it, you definitely didn't just try to fade into the background of, of getting no, so paid for, for sure,
1: for sure. And that came with a lot of hard work. And I had to develop this grinded out mentality, right? So like, I was slowly putting on weight, developing strength. That was a lot of early mornings in the weight room. That was a lot of, of work where I worked myself damn near dead. A lot of repetitions. I've spent a lot of time over the course of, especially the last three, four years of my college experience at Minnesota training. It was to the point where I think probably total in three years, I might've taken off three weeks of actual throwing, which if you get to a professional level of throwing, you'll understand that those guys probably take months off after their season. So I was taking about three weeks off to four weeks off in the span of three years, just trying to make up for lost time per se. But I slowly started to learn in my last year in Minnesota, it's, you can only do that so long. So I got to the point where the indoor season ended unfortunately, because of COVID, so the outdoor season didn't happen, and I, that's kind of when my process of transferring to Georgia happened, but I was also going through a huge, like, questioning phase in my training, because I was pretty broken down, both mentally and physically, mentally just through COVID, but physically through training, and also mentally through training a little bit, I was pretty beat up, my elbow at that time was really bad, my back was hurting, it just, there was a lot of stuff, and I tried to kept, keep pushing through training a little bit, And I was just at a point where I was questioning, like, there has to be a a better way for me to train. But unfortunately, my mind, my psychology wasn't allowing me to because I still had that grind mentality that I have to come from the bottom a little bit to get where I'm going. The grit, right? Yeah, the grit, but it was negatively affecting me. I remember last summer I was trying to grind through it. I felt like I was getting weaker. My body was just hurting more. There was just no happy medium. And it started to almost get to the point where it wasn't even enjoying it much anymore because it was just so much of a, the grind was starting to wear on me. I'd get to Georgia and my training went to a lot more of, we need to to go to quality. I started to get plenty of quantity and repetitions through throws. We need to get quality now. So the amount of throwing, actually got reduced a little bit the weight room got reduced slightly at the beginning to just a a little bit less volume a lot like less intensity a lot of meat and potato stuff like you're gonna hit the back squat the bench the olympic lifts and you're gonna do a few accessories but call it good from there within about six weeks i was still feeling i was still trying to almost recover from the three four years of previous training i was still really run down and it was affecting my training in in the shot put so my coach now coach don babbitt at the university of georgia is is a super amazing coach and he's very flexible in terms of his athletes how they train and he's just okay this is a nervous system issue like your nervous system isn't adapting to this stuff like how with you how do i optimize your nervous system to train properly he just had a conversation with me and i just said i was doing about five sets per lift and i'm like i think i need that reduced to three and i'm like i think i need to change that mentality a little bit where like I'm getting maybe that first set is very light, and almost another warm up, and then I'm starting that second set to a little heavier. That's just getting into specifics, but what I found is within a couple months of reducing my training down not in half, but to about a third of what I was doing, my body slowly started to feel much better, and I started to also slowly and then increase drastically my amount of strength. So. I sat down with myself and I'm like, I'm doing less and I'm getting better results. Right. I'm like, Jesus, I'm winning. I'm winning at that point. I'm doing less, but getting more. But then I also got to thinking though, like that's a, a kind of a bad mentality, thinking that less is always more. Cause if you try to generalize that a little bit, just the, the right. common population, that's not necessarily the case. You know what I'm saying? Not everybody needs to do less. From, from my not,
0: perspective, I was going to say, from my perspective... It seems as though that you came out of, of high school and you had to hit this breadth of, mm-hmm. of doing a lot of different things. You had to learn a, a new technique. You yep. had to put on weight. Mm-hmm. You, you were also in, in the point of your life where you're probably wide-eyed and trying to figure out where you, where, where you fit in the world. And now after your, what, sixth, seventh year in college, you're probably a little bit firmer in knowing where you are and what you need. And you're actually dialing in more to specifics. So you're actually specializing in what Mm -hmm. you're trying to do, right? You're trying to optimize in your, in the highest and best use of what you can. Right?
1: Yeah. And that's exactly what I was actually going to get to. So I changed the the definition of the idea from less is more to there's an optimal amount, there's an optimal amount. And that is more generalizable, right? Like my optimal amount for how much I need to study might not be less, but my optimal amount for training might actually be less. And now we get back to the physical therapy and rehab part where my experience with some trainers is that they just keep adding more. You start off with maybe two exercises, three sets of 10. Within a week, you have four exercises, three sets of 10. Within a couple weeks, you're at four exercises, four sets of 15, and they keep adding repetitions. Instead of adding and doing more and more, I just think there's an optimal amount that needs to be done. And that just goes off of if you look at some hypertrophy research, now this is strength and conditioning. So, this is getting with that idea of specialization. So, when you're an athletic trainer, you're specialized in athletic training, but the programming involved in athletic training, when you're programming rehabilitation, that's a very personal trainer, strength coach aspect that you have to learn, but I think is sometimes missed in the athletic training curriculum. So, that being said, if you look at hypertrophy, I, like when you train accessory stuff with hypertrophy, let's say, okay, you hit your big bench press, now you want to do chest flies. You don't necessarily need to week by week increase weight or increase reps or increase sets. You can actually do the same weight, the same sets for three to four weeks and get the same result. All you're doing is adding repetitions to grow the muscle and grow the ligaments around it. And you can approach that with the same mentality in, a, in physical therapy or, or rehabilitation of injuries. So if you are working on an elbow, for example, you might do some forearm exercises instead of adding more. If you think about it, if you just do three sets of 10 or three sets of 12, whatever that optimal number is for you, if you do that every other day for two months, that's a lot of repetitions that are going to add up. So that
0: makes sense. And so, so, and one of the, one of the benefits of wanting to do this podcast is, is to get nuggets of information like that, even for myself, like from there's this There's these abstractions that come above what the reality of whatever you're talking about within your domain that that are generalizable. And what I mean by that is that when you take analogies, it's dangerous, right? Because you're playing with the ability to take a a concept or structure and then apply it to another domain, which can be dangerous because it's not always transferable, Mm -hmm. but the the benefit to what you're saying is it's if you repeat what you're doing and not always trying to slave yourself and trying to kill yourself you're going to strengthen well-roundedly
1: yeah yeah and that that yeah and that optimal amount is so generalizable to me and it's not it's not like it's a true definition and this is law you have to do it but that optimized amount means in some things that's more in some things that's less and i think now my approach to a lot of things not just training is to try to find that optimal amount where i'm getting a lot out of what i'm doing but trying to it's almost efficient. You're finding more efficiency in it. And, the, and, and that makes I, life a little easier.
0: That gives you the opportunity to explore other domains, too. Yep. So if I do the optimal amount in, what, in whatever I'm trying to train and do whatever, that gives me just 20% more energy to explore my whatever I'm learning in college, right? Yeah. It's the same thing. It's like you, you can spend the entire week exhausting yourself over learning mm-hmm. whatever concept you're doing. But yeah. I guarantee you, if you just find a system that works, th- mm-hmm. there's a saying, you don't fall to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems.
1: That is super, that's a super insightful quote.
0: Instead of just trying to throw yourself at the entire wall, you try to dissect the, the trivial things, iron those out, get those unconscious, you're just doing them in a day to day. And then you can explore more and more, and then mm-hmm. you can widen out what you're doing. And, and I think from my perspective of seeing you do this, I think you actually, after being five years in undergrad, you were like, I cannot learn any more of the same classes in kinesiology. Yeah. And I think that this is probably why you diverged probably from doing like a physical therapy or something in relation to that. For sure. Um, And I wanna obviously touch on this because I think it's an interesting point because in my personal career, I started out in one place and now I'm in in technology and I've never even went to school for that. But because I've been able to merge a couple domains into one, I've become very fortified in, in my understanding of things. So as you moved to University of Georgia, you obviously got the extra year because of COVID. And now you're getting your master's in sports management. Like, what is your experience in kind of making that pivot? So to me, it it, it more feels like you've expanded in other places than what you're training in. Mm-hmm. I feel like what your shot put life, I mean, and I could be wrong too, because you got a new coach. You got a yep. whole new learning platform. But widening, widening your range has allowed you to, to narrow in more because you've seen and understand it more. And I, I guess I'm more or less asking, like, how did that impact, how did that more or less impact where you are now? Like, how do, you enjoy, how do you feel about sports management? How do you like your current living situation as far as what you're learning, who your coaches are, and walk me through that.
1: Yeah, so in terms of sports management, I'm, I'm super happy I chose it. And the main reason I chose it is exactly – you touched on it a bit. I didn't necessarily – I wasn't quite for sure that I wanted to specialize in something like physical therapy and go into just more of what I was learning just in a more specific way. And I thought the better way to go about it was just to stay pretty general. And I so I learned about, like, the scientific side of sport per se, the exercise science part. I thought it would be also pretty valuable to learn about the business side of sport. I'm a person that just – I don't necessarily see myself staying in the same career over like a 50 year span. And maybe I want to coach after college. I'm not exactly sure yet. And that kinesiology degree is a great background to get into coaching. But then later in life, if I get tired of coaching and maybe want to move to more administration or a whatever then that business degree comes into play it's been great because i've learned a lot and just through the different like papers that i've had to type or projects that i've worked with groups like you learn a lot about the ins and outs of sports especially at the administrative level of the ncaa or stuff like that i think it's super valuable and makes me look at although i'm an athlete in the ncaa look at the other side a lot differently for better and for worse but but a lot differently not that was super valuable So in terms of learning from a new coach, my coach is great. He's one of, he's pretty world renowned. He's coached various Olympians and all of this stuff. And just his mindset towards coaching is very different than what I've had in the past in a very good way. So exactly what you said, since I changed coaches, I've actually just continued to learn in the same domain. But what I've learned is also specializing and hitting more of the meat and potatoes and getting rid of the access stuff. And it's been a really good experience in that aspect too.
0: Right, in in, in your sport specifically is a specialized sport, right?
1: Very specialized.
0: So so to to play the dichotomy of specialized to generalize, I think this is a great example of this because you obviously took a pivot and you moved into a new coaching and you have also in your historical coaching over the course of the last, however many years, you've actually had a couple handful of coaches, right? So you've Mm -hmm. actually learned a variety of different philosophies, systems, practicing methods, and as soon as you get comfortable in one, you have to move to another. And from my perspective, I think there, there is a benefit to widening and understanding the, the entire full spectrum of picture, mm-hmm. understanding where you fit in that to specialize yep. specifically along that spectrum of where you, spe- like what coaching method, where you fall, but you would never know that you would just be blindly following your coach, right?
1: Yeah, so Exactly.
0: And I think that the development of a person is actually along that line. You need to have a skill and you need to specialize in that skill because that's, you have to be the best of whatever you do, or you mm-hmm. want to strive for that. But simultaneously you need to get that breath. Like you need to, people need to feel the benefits of, of moving to a new location and feeling uncomfortable. There's nothing like breath from moving from one city to another across the country and having to acclimate yourself to new things, new coaching styles, new like you, you don't even know where you are. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously a lot of sifting and acclimating your awareness of where you are in your environment and stuff like that. So my objective of this and I think what ends up happening a lot with like where I where my profession is within construction is like you have all these specialty trades, right? You have all the you know the mechanical, the electrical, the plumbing, all these different specialty trades. But then I I work for a general contractor and it's I started to see this relationship between specializing and generalizing. And so I obviously read this book and and I've always been like you, I think more interested in generalizing enough to find your road, right. Mm -hmm. Instead of just following a road. And, And I think that there's a lot of utility in that. And it's interesting because for an example, You started in sports management. We're talking about things I've never even heard of just organizational structures in, in different, sporting from NFL to basketball or whatever. And then we're also talking about the NCAA, right? Where now athletes have the ability to potentially advertise themselves and promote themselves and and you're going through and learning law Mm -hmm. in different dynamics while being an NCAA athlete. So yeah. There's, to me, there's such a benefit to, to living in the reality of the space and then learning the theory, which is above it. Mm-hmm. And then to me, I'm interested in the conversation that's pragmatically in between. What do you think about that? What do you, in, in your experience, and we can obviously talk about the abstraction of, and we've already touched on that, where you're learning what you're doing. But now that you've developed into this person that's potentially going to enter into the career field. And learning about the ncaa and potentially maybe going to coach or whatever it may be mm-hmm. like what's your perspective on on all these different legislations and in different sports yeah.
1: related fields yeah so do you want to talk about like the nil stuff and athletes starting mm-hmm. to get paid that ability so it's, it's just interesting and this is i'm sure we're going to talk about the olympics a little bit in the future but i think it goes to the origin of what what these organizations started as so the ncaa started as the organization back in the day because there were college sports but there were no rules there were no guidelines so like in ncaa football at the time people were dying because a random guy on the street would come play in the game and there was fights and this and that so actually teddy roosevelt put through some legislation like we need to figure this out like we need to organize college sports so that there's regulation and there's law and there's all this stuff behind this. So the NCAA was created. A nonprofit organization that with the idea of hosting amateur athletes in collegiate sport. A lot with a lot of things, a lot has changed since the time the NCAA was created. And for the NCAA to survive, what had to happen? Well, you have to commercialize a little bit. You have to start making money. Because to put on these things like professional sports are becoming huge all this stuff to like continue to stay in that realm you have to commercialize yourself I mean, and in I, the midst I of that i
0: was gonna say i immediately think of non-nonprofit right ncaa is the the large i can't i can't imagine their if their overhead is completely free if their actual workers are free how do you not yeah. have profit like where where's the money that, go? yeah
1: exactly right. so then you think so there's a little there's the little hypocrisy there so schools the institutions the member institutions of the ncaa so what wherever that be they also make a lot of money through through this commercialization, through pretend, mainly football. The, the member institutions really get their money from football. And the NCAA get their money through basketball. And kind of how that arose was a case back in, I think it was 1984. It was uh, the Board of Regents of the University of Oklahoma, the University of Georgia against the NCAA. And it basically at the time, the NCAA was trying to uphold amateurism. So what they were doing is, okay, we're broadcasting television. We're broadcasting these football games, but we're giving you two, we're giving you two, we're giving you two, we're giving you two. two. And everybody gets the same amount. That means everybody has the same benefits from the games, and everybody can recruit with that same mindset. They're trying to maintain amateurism. Well, Georgia and Oklahoma are like, we're in more demand. So how how do we only get two? Why can't we we negotiate our own TV contracts? Because we can get way more than two games. We can put them on primetime television and make way more money. So... Now it's the case to, to overview it. That was the case. It, it went against antitrust law. They got their way and they were able to organize and negotiate their own television contracts, which nowadays has turned into the SEC network, the Big Ten network, the Pac-12 network, all of this stuff. And money is just flowing in. Each member institution makes a fair amount of money, well into six, seven figures in terms of the, uh, television contracts. So you see the member institutions making quite a bit of profit. You see the NCAA themselves making quite a bit of profit, but then you see the free employer of the athlete making right. nothing. And then, um, and
0: the distribution of revenue is coming in from the sports that are obviously commercialized Yeah. while, while the pro it's nonprofit,
1: mm-hmm. which
0: in, in theory, you would think that the revenue would then to be distributed through all the other NCAA sports. And of course, this yep. is something that we've talked about quite a bit where it's ironic because your sport at the university of Minnesota, was on mm-hmm. the chopping block along with other sports across the nation, like wrestling. Wrestling, a family, and, and obviously follow that sport, but the sports that don't pull revenue then get cut. And to me, if you're a nonprofit, you, you have to distribute that revenue for sure. Granted, it, you you pull into this again. This is that medium of abstraction. It's okay. The free market capitalists will go. Okay, does it pull in revenue? Then it's not worth it. But it's the sport isn't. Yeah. The sport isn't about the audience that's participating in it. It's about the sport being Mm -hmm. valued to the participants and their evolution of who they are.
1: For sure. Absolutely. And what you see is you see where money comes in. You can also maximize revenue there. So money's coming into football. So there's this arm race. This again goes into amateurism. So you can't pay an athlete. You can't call up the number one recruit in the nation and say, Hey, we're going to offer you a contract of a million dollars to come play for the university of Yada. So how do you attract a recruit from university A to university B? It's facilities. Also, these programs are getting cut. And you, so now you're just investing a lot more money into certain programs to optimize the amount of recruits that you get to then have a better team to then make more money. And that's the constant flow. And you see this in – if you look at like a Clemson football facility, this is actually quite remarkable. Just Google it and you'd be blown away. They have a state-of-the-art turf dugouts and everything wiffle ball field wiffle ball field why because they can say they have it do you think the football players after a long day of practice go oh let's go play some wiffle ball no but they can say hey we have everything we even have a wiffle ball field thousand whistle sales so instead of actually distributing the money to the athletes to the other sports money is getting distributed back into the programs in a way of facilities. so not even to, the football players get the side effect of having these nice facilities which is also great. It's a great.
0: Granted they have their sport, right?
1: Yeah. Whereas
0: the the sports that aren't pulling in the revenue, I think of like gymnastics to, to wrestling, to (laughs) track and field. Like my, my biggest dilemma about this from a public good standpoint, it's like if you're a nonprofit and you are giving kids the opportunity to go to college as a benchmark (laughs) for their excellence, right? Like you you are putting their excellence on a platform, but then not properly allocating money and then bulking up your administration to soak up that money. To me, it shows the flaw of making schools and academics as a business. There's a place for revenue and maximizing revenue for singularity of product. Like obviously football makes a ton of money right yeah and granted like you want obviously to reinvest that money in the thing that's grant giving you the highest and best value mm-hmm. but simultaneously you got to remember that your college is trying to develop kids and, and give them a degree right yeah you're and trying to that's... develop
1: a, a student athlete and if you, i'm sure if you looked up the ncaa's mission statement it's guided towards that creating the experience for the athlete and having them walk out better than they came in to the university in the ncaa right. setting
0: and creating opportunities for yeah. kids that may are maybe underrepresented in other aspects. Mm-hmm. To me, it's it's the beauty of the generalization, right? Like with a generalist, it's you're good at this and you're also good at school. You're half good at both. You, mm-hmm. Well, here you go. Here's your ticket to become really good at both of them. It, and there's such a, a barrier to entry when you cut those programs out. And it, it's sad because I see it in like the wrestling. Stanford, for example, got cut out. There's a big mm-hmm. thing this year where... One of the Stanford wrestlers, he wore a a black singlet to not represent his school and they cut the program. They raised like $12 million in external donations, which would, for the next 10 years, carry that program, but they still cut it. And to me, it's getting to the point of like principle of someone trying to be bigger than the other person. it's come on, like you're not thinking about these kids that are essentially, and granted, like. How many kids go from NCAA Division I sports to another level of sports? Not many. You're you're developing kids to be well-rounded people. You're giving them an education. And I don't know. That's kind of my (laughs) thoughts on it.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I'll just echo back on that a little bit. Because the gymnastics teams at Minnesota who got cut did the same thing. They received donations and it was millions upon millions of dollars enough to fund that program for a few years and it got turned down and then I think when stuff like that happens you you have to slowly understand that it's deeper than just cutting the sport you know what I mean or getting the money from cutting the sport so what I have seen is right away that I'm like okay the lit up my head like what what's going on here You you find out that What's a no no nowadays? You can't just cut a, a woman's team, right? That's going to cause you want headlines, cut a women's team and see how the internet reacts to that. But what you can do is you can cut a men's team and then you can reduce the women's team side, which, you know, now there's only whispers of what's happening there. And it's kind of more from a men's perspective. So now you reduce the roster sizes to the women's teams, cut the men's teams. Now your athletic budget has decreased, right. not significantly, but a good amount. Yeah. So in and, and Title IX, the interesting thing when it comes to university setting is it's equal representation, but equal isn't 50-50. So what happens is you have to have the same representation of males and females in the athletic department as they do at the university, but they give you like a, a wiggle room of 5%. So at the University of Minnesota, I think it's 54% female, meaning that the athletic department has to have 54% female representation, give or take 5%, which is a lot, which is a lot of numbers. So that's what it gets down to, though. You can cut the men, then you increase the percentage of women, but then you can cut down the women so that percentage equals out. But it's interesting, though, because if you look at places like other universities that have a lot of men, like there's some universities with 70% men, the athletic department isn't going to probably show that, which is interesting. There's no reverse Title IX, but Clemson's another school that got... The track team got cut originally, but it was the first time in the NCAA where the women's and the men's team combined together to form a Title IX suit, and it got the team back. I'm not necessarily sure the specifics around that or or how that worked, but it's crazy. It's interesting because using Title IX, in a very weird way that probably wasn't meant for it to be used as a loophole. But that's what everybody finds nowadays is loopholes around things to,
0: to optimize what they're trying to do.
1: Any regulation
0: or a policy, there's a loop, there's a double-edged sword Double-edged sword there that then mm-hmm. can create you as a proprietary or a, I'm goody two-shoes, but it's actually an evil intent.
1: And, for sure. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I know... I mean, this, this topic is obviously a huge conversation. Athletes that get scholarships are good. That's beneficial enough to the fact that they deserve their education, right? We're seeing the fruits of that labor of, as, as far as the sports that are getting cut and the sports that mm-hmm. are getting their scholarships. And it's okay – How do you value the density of one sport to another by the viewership of that sport? not necessarily.
1: Right. That's difficult to do.
0: And this is one of the things that I actually think that social media is actually benefiting a variety of sports with. And I guess more or less what I'm saying is like, I think of flow wrestling and -hmm. obviously I'm I'm using my experience of this type of sport they're doing a lot of cool promotions and different events that kind of are niche to that sport. So that's the benefit of having this general landscape of open space of, of being able to promote, but 10 years ago, you weren't going to see, you weren't going to see wrestling on ESPN. There was, I should say a price per position on mainstream TV, right? Yeah. And now there's this platform in which athletes in different domains can promote themselves. And yet NCAA is still limiting that ability. So it's like Sean Donnelly, we, one of your old teammates. Mm -hmm. He's obviously promoted himself to a place of this platform in which that benefits the sport in general. Oh, for sure. And, and that's a great use case of, of why I think that athletes should be able to promote it's, it's not that it's not just handed to them. They're doing the Mm -hmm. work, like you're doing the work to promote yourself. You're marketing Mm -hmm. and you're striving to, to benefit back into that community of sports Yeah. and if. Variety of athletes, and obviously we're thinking about football because football players would get paid a shit ton. For the sports that don't necessarily have the opportunity to promote themselves, they can do a whole lot of
1: good for their sport. I think, yeah. anyways. Yep. Yeah. So that kind of comes with like, how do we solve or work towards solving this whole amateur issue? And you're starting to see this whole NIL thing. NIL is name, image, and likeness, and that's getting into what you're talking about: athletes being able to brand themselves. And make money for it because I I disagree with the idea of just paying athletes straight out a straight right. out salary because I see so much problem with that I see well obviously a lot of the money is going to go towards a football or a basketball player but then your returns start going down because right now you're getting free, you're getting free labor per se it's not free but I. Nearly free yeah, labor you know. to get to, to put on a, a broadcast and so a television so you get to watch football on TV and the school brings in a lot of money Instantly if you're paying a kid a hundred dollar hundred thousand dollar salary, you're losing a hundred thousand dollars for the profit So how is that gonna work? You're gonna see a lot of I think low let lower end non sports that aren't making revenue Probably get cut. So I think that's a, actually a terrible solution is to pay athletes straight up but now we have this great thing of name, image, and likeness, and you have the ability to brand yourself and make money through that brand, and really benefit from, like you said, all that work you can, all that work you can do. So that's what we're working towards. Not we, the NCAA is working towards. And there's going to be a hearing this summer based on the legislation that they've written up. And uh, I can say, so we've had about three NIL meetings here at Georgia, and basically everything they've said is that. They're going to help us out in any way possible. And the main thing you can do right now is build your brand. So build your brand through, through all the social media sites, basically gain a following. Because like, then that yeah, create following, a platform.
0: create a platform, yep, right? Because
1: that following, right? If you have a 10,000 followers on TikTok or Instagram, then a brand is going to want to approach you for you to make money. But you're so, still
0: putting the work in,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the problem here is... Unfortunately, this change of NIL isn't coming because the NCAA wants it to. It's becoming it's coming to fruition because they're getting forced to through other legislation that's happening throughout uh, the country at this time. The state of California in 2023 is passing a bill called uh, Fair Pay to Play. And basically what it does is it says athletes can make money off their brand in the NCAA, and actually it goes against the NCAA rules, so the NCAA can't ban the athlete if they do. I'm not really sure how exactly... They got that to pass. I'm not, that's where my, I don't have expertise completely in law. I've just right. taken one law class, but 30 other States have also started to draft legislation based on the fair pay to play act that California is putting into place. So we're seeing from 2023, probably a couple years past. So many states are going to have legislation that athletes can brand themselves that the NCAA needs to get ahead of the curve. They need to, they're, so they're actually just trying to set the standard so that they don't probably lose too much. So unfortunately it comes with the ideology of, they have to, and it might not benefit the athlete completely. So how do you, right. how does this work out right now? Currently, it seems that the NILs are probably going to only benefit athletes in terms of like autographs or stuff like that, autographs and coaching experience. You can use your name now and be like, Hey, I'm John Tharlson. I'm going to put a coaching camp on in Bismarck, North Dakota. I'm a university of Georgia shop putter. Come and you can pay me. I couldn't do that before. With this legislation you can with this legislation i can go have an autograph session uh, at the downtown mall and pay people 10 bucks for an autograph which was before against ncaa rules but the whole branding aspect the whole of gaining your brand so that some other i don't know some lifting company can come brand me because i have ten thousand followers on this platform that's probably not going to be possible because the ncaa is making it against the rules for you to take on sponsorship that goes against your school's sponsorships, right? They're, 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 they don't want that conflict of interest to happen. The school sponsorship is pretty much everything. You have Nike or Under Armour or all this has apparel sponsors. So there go all of your apparel sponsors, which was probably the main thing that's gonna brand an athlete. Then like you have Minnesota that's getting sponsored by like Land O'Lakes for food and drink and, or, and Powerade. There goes another huge chunk of opportunity there. Right. And it goes down to the point, in my sport law class, we broke it down. uga university of georgia they have a wood sponsor like something at that that small and minute so how so if they have a wood sponsor how are you going to find anything to actually brand yourself and be able to make money so it's an imperfect solution but i think it's a good start we're starting to cut down the amount of power that the ncaa has over the amateur athlete and it's a good start and i'm I'm excited for it unfortunately i won't get to utilize that i'll be out of college at the time. But I'm excited for the people that are coming through. I think they're going to get a better college experience, opportunity to make a little money, brand themselves, and I think it's going to really benefit sports like track and field that can actually find unique ways to brand themselves now.
0: That's I think that's a great you know summarization of what the objective is. It's not to just get a salary and, no. and have, have people make their money. It's a way to create a platform in which then you can excel your sport. Let's say you wanted to become – for a local, I, I think of Carson Wentz and Shields, right? Carson Wentz went to the NFL and became a shield sponsor right away. Like just yep. to put it on the map mm-hmm. and that opportunity to do that. Like I guarantee you he didn't make a lot of money doing that. Maybe he did not mm-hmm. compared to what his. NFL his contract other, is. Yeah, exactly. And if I can make sponsorships for just being who I am and trying to become, I, I just, the, the sovereignty of the person and their ability to make their brand. I just know there's value in that. I know from a technology standpoint, building a platform in which your social media is algorithmically pulling people into it, you leave college and all of a sudden you still hold the amount of following you have and then all of a sudden you just monetize it. And and how, do you, how does the NCAA get away from that? I don't think that the technicalities of, okay, yeah, you have a social media account in which you're posting videos and podcasts and doing all these different things. For example, my goal is I hope this podcast brings you... Attention! I hope that it, Mm -hmm. I hope that it brings you an opportunity from a general perspective that an interviewee can just watch this video and get a good gist of your conceptual knowledge of of whatever we're talking about. Mm -hmm, And um, like how there's no possible way to get around that. Like it's Mm -hmm. too decentralized now. It's it's way too decentralized and
1: exactly society has advanced to the point where it's social media, just a technology that wasn't even. Um, as large of a platform as it was. Like, 10 years ago, social media was a lot smaller. 10 years before that, it wasn't a thing. So that ability, I'm not even very active on social media, but I've done things like I posted a video of me when it was snowing in Bismarck throwing a shot put dressed in a Santa Claus outfit, and that got 15,000 views on Twitter and retweeted by a lot of people. This summer, I posted a video of me throwing a clay pigeon like a discus with uh, our friends shooting it. That got 20,000 views on Twitter and a bunch of retweets It got tweeted by flow tracks, the flow rest of that of track, and tweeted out by the Olympic channel. They put it in one of their own videos. So it just proves that I'm not even very active and don't try to do that stuff. And I still had opportunities to actually brand myself. So imagine I could have probably took that because I had no incentive to do. Give me an incentive to brand myself I think I could definitely have done it and it's missed out on a little opportunity there. But at the same time, I'm, I'm so excited for the future of NCAA athletes because I think that's going to really, it's going to be so good for them. And I, I think it's well-deserved too.
0: I think this segues into pro- probably another topic that we can touch mm-hmm. on, but I think that there's a benefit in this branding of individuals that then dip maybe in outside their sport. We're seeing that right now. We see DK Metcalf running track and we see Conor McGregor jumping into boxing from being in, from a general, I always think of MMA as a generalist sport because it has so many different disciplines. And we're seeing this trend of generalists, not staying in their lane. Donald Trump, for example, ran his off presidency off of this principle. People would say Mm -hmm. stay in your lane that tests it, right? I have an outside perspective. People right now enjoy that because we know that there's a bias associated with doing one thing for your entire life. You're only getting a sliver of the perspective and you don't know. You, you never know. Like granted, we've never really seen an athlete, for example, like Conor McGregor go against Floyd Mayweather. There was probably 0% chance of efficiency from Conor McGregor to even beat him. Mm-hmm. But there's something interesting about that concept. Right. And, and to tie it all back to the brand, like for example, right? Like you, you jumped a forty inch vertical and it's thirty nine or forty. Thirty nine. Thirty nine. Okay. Sorry, I rounded up. <laughs> that's, so thirty nine <laughs> inch vertical. The University of Georgia football coach likes it or retweets it or whatever. To me, there's an appeal for you to go play football. it's just it's just something that's going on right now that's in the era of oh that person could do that. And I yep. think it's because information and discipline is so transferable now where it was never before. Mm -hmm. And I think the gates to entry, the gates of entry are so much more open that it's possible. What do you think about that? I'm always interested because you're obviously in the sport realm. I think that this analogy is obviously very beneficial from a sports perspective, but I think of, for an example, like my boss was a lawyer and became a CFO and he has a ton of benefits from doing that, right? Granted, he's probably not the best of the best. But the fact that DK Metcalf could even maybe compete, there's yeah. there's a utility there, right?
1: Yeah, and I think it shows off the benefits of some generalization because the part, of, like a great part of generalization, is you get good at a lot, so that can transfer over to a more specialized discipline. Maybe you're not as high level as the guys you're competing against. DK Metcalf, for example, going over to 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 run the hundred meter dash, you're going to probably see that he's slower than the track guys, which it's probably not going to surprise a whole lot of people it's going to surprise some but the fact that he has trained in a more generalized athletic sense in football but that can transfer over to just track speed i think it's pretty telling and you see that in conor mcgregor as well has a very generalized training style of mixed martial arts but can use that skill of boxing to then go brand himself in a different way and we talked about this a little bit before the podcast actually like that branding can help the individual. So Conor McGregor gain more of a following, gain more of a capital and all of that. Stuff. But it can also help the sport that he is
0: in, so UFC.
1: So I'm sure he probably brought a, a good audience of boxing to UFC, but he also brought a UFC audience to boxing. There's a Canelo Alvarez fight tonight. I'm interested in that fight because I watched the Floyd and Conor boxing match, and if boxing now interests me. A little bit so that just proves to the, the gravity of doing things like that and
0: you see this more and more now with the I think we live in an information age now mm-hmm. where what, what I mean by that is we live in an information age that's so transferable among disciplines that the uniform like and, and I think because more and more specialized things become the peak of what they already are, you're seeing mm-hmm. people dip in they're like, I'm bored of, I'm not going to spend the next 20 years becoming the best at this one thing. Let, I'm going to move to the next thing. Yeah. And I think that's why I love the UFC in particular, because so many athletes that were originally specialized are forced to then generalize into an array of domains. It's, you got Muay Thai, you got, ki- you got boxing, kickboxing, jitsu, um, mm-hmm wrestling and there's obviously the primary sport and then there's a bunch of secondary sports yeah but it's really cool to see the well-rounding of where the sport is now from obviously the Gracie days and all all of those days but yeah I don't know. I, I think that point is an interesting point. And I think I've, I've always been a proponent of trying to get you to go do a combine because I just know <laughs> how sure. fucking freakishly athletic you are from a wide receiver to a shot putter. You essentially specialized into one one domain and along that way, you're still a freak. Like mm-hmm. a 39 inch vertical at being 285, 290 pounds is unheard of and, and there's something more interesting than that than just
1: an average person that comes up you think of the
0: antonio gates basketball player what's there's something cool about that i, I just for
1: sure for sure and I, like you said like the information age you took a different perspective what i took from the information age is it also allows you to put yourself out there more it also right. allows you to right? like back in the day if you don't have this information of like social media and stuff getting passed around, you probably don't see the DK Metcalf chase down of Buda Baker in that game that made him look so fast. And without that, you probably don't have him transfer over to track and field. And just as an example, like, oh, if I were to go do an NFL combine, it probably happens because I put my information of a vertical jump video on Twitter that could have that, you know potentially blowed up more height, and create right. some buzz. So I think that's another thing of the information age is so much stuff is getting recorded and so much stuff is getting posted that you just see, see the opportunity that can be elsewhere, which I think is a, it's a really good thing. I think, I think it just keeps building things more and more. Your example of the UFC is a great one. You come to the UFC specialized, you have to generalize yourself to become good. If one guy generalizes and becomes just a much better fighter. So does the next guy to fight him. And what you've seen is now how well-rounded the UFC fighters are nowadays compared to 10 years ago and how good the sport is getting. God, it seems like every day there's another guy that just looks so freaking good and he has the chance to just be great. and it just I mean, makes...
0: Kam- Kamara Usman surprised me this last fight where oh, man. he knocked yeah. out Masvidal,
1: right? Dana's smiling ear-to-ear ear because they, he has all this talent right. that he could just consistently put up. Because I think the UFC cards over the years have just gotten better and better. It seems like every one now is just a loaded card where before it was like it seemed loaded once every three months and now it's just the quality it seems like they have one card like it's super like loaded and then that's their standard and that they keep and the only way that's possible is because all of these fighters are trying to become so good in all these domains that fights are super competitive and super fun to watch right and it's,
0: it's all about styles and it's all there every fight could be different it's much mm-hmm. more dynamic than it used to be like more it used to be much more predictable the UFC, you hear a lot of rumblings that we we're ta- we we're touching on Kamara Usman mm-hmm. and Jake Paul. You hear about Jake Paul all the time, and the Paul brothers. We have Paul Mayweather coming up here. One of the interesting points that. That Jake Paul put light to was that the UFC actually has a has, isn't make as much money as what maybe he makes in boxing. He's like in my yep. third fight I made more than any of these fighters in the UFC. But there's a there's a good abstraction out of that that I'd like to touch on. Kamar Usman made what three million dollars is this last fight against Masvidal. He had, a, he had a huge ticket. Obviously that's outside of what the pay per view numbers were. And you hear Jake Paul makes what fifty million dollars against Ben Askren, which was horrible. Mm-hmm. Wrestling, you know, wrestling background. It's, it was yeah. very upsetting to see Ben Askren go down like that. But there's something to be said about the hype around what we were talking about. But going back to the UFC, it's interesting to me that the UFC has a very strong mean of pay, and what I mean mm-hmm. by that is that the distribution of pay is actually pretty equivalent across the middle tier guys. Whereas when you have, you're in boxing, the promotion is very concentrated in the best boxers, right? There's so much money in boxing compared to UFC, and it's only four guys are making that much. Yeah, yeah. The other guys are working two jobs, right?
1: Yeah, You always hear of, like, Floyd Mayweather making those $100 million... paychecks
0: not hearing about the guys that are under under the card that are making like twenty thousand dollars to go box right
1: yeah yeah where the ufc the median makes more the median makes a more livable style of wage the money is distributed more a little more equally not equal but more more i don't know i don't even know if if you want to say fairly but it's just more equally distributed
0: and right there there's the obviously the philosophy there it's should you distribute the money equally to the mean or do you Mm -hmm. let the the best of the best earn the er, like er, make their earnings of keep, and I actually think that because the MMA is so general with its barriers to access, that it's actually becoming more and more. It's it, the distribution so wide that it's not like it's not like what boxing is because boxing is super super specialized. So the ceiling it's like this, whereas. Mm-hmm. The, the UFC is like this And anyone can knock off the top contender Pretty quickly just by a Style, a different difference in style
1: Yeah, or even just like A new asset to their game I think you saw that in the Poirier versus McGregor The leg kicks, yeah
0: Yeah, no, and I think that's Again, like what we are talking about The reality of the example, the use case And then talking about the abstraction it's, I think that the UFC is a great example of this Because it's all about styles but at the end of the day, you want interesting fights that get consumer attention, mm-hmm. and the consumer intent. So it's not. It's pretty obvious that the wrestling background is is obviously pretty dominant in the wrestling re- or in the UFC realm. But it's boring, right? You mm-hmm. know, Habib to Henry Cejudo to Habib. Not to get into tech specifics because people might not be interested in that, but. It's to me, it's it, the, the most well-rounded fighters, the most interesting. The ones that can box, the ones that can defend takedowns and slip into different areas of their game are the most interesting and exciting. I don't know. I've just always been super interested in, in what is the right philosophy. Do you pay people equally because the brand is worth it? Or mm-hmm. do you give people the platform to just earn their money, right?
1: Yeah, there's so many layers to this, actually, because boxing is, because I don't even know the whole background of boxing in terms of, there's so many different organizations, per se, or federations is the proper term. That's why you see five different heavyweights having a heavyweight title, because there's five different federations that host. So, like, I think that plays a part of it, where in the UFC, there's multiple MMA federations. Bellator, one fight, all of this. Yeah, three or four. I think there's a lot of lower ones, but UFC definitely has the best product, and they definitely pay the best. If you were to be in the UFC, you're probably going to make, especially as the median, more money. Maybe the Bellator is going to go and say, hey, John Jones, let's come to here instead, and we'll pay you that amount. But it's not going to be distributed as equally as the UFC. So there's so many layers to this. It goes back to the NCAA in terms of track and field and wrestling and all these. Do you help support that median? As well as the money makers, and it, again, it talks about NIL in a way because I think the way the UFC works is, yeah, we're going to give you a smaller base salary. Kamara Usman, three million dollars compared to what the boxers make. Their base salary is probably twenty to twenty-five million. But the pay-per-views matter. If more people buy the pay-per-views, you're going to make more revenue. So that's interesting because it adds a whole entertainment aspect to the ufc and boxing is similar but they incentivize you to put on an entertaining show per se which might help out the ufc as well
0: that that's i think that's the downfall of sports in some regard because and i don't mean downfall i think it's a blessing and a curse because you it's an audience it's an audience dependent consumption yeah the consumption consumer driven it's consumer driven in a vacuum the sport is obviously it's amazing within its its own domain but like for example what i go and do in in my work and what i excel at is not it's not driven by the participation of people watching me where a lot of times and and that's and that goes back to the nil and all these different factors it's i guarantee you if you give the individuals that are participating in the sports the sovereignty to create their brand Uh i guarantee you the the tide rises all boats basically is what yeah yeah it's like if you have participants in that sport that are excelling and they create a brand around it i guarantee you the little kids that are watching these people are going to be much more acclimated and more engaging in that sport than ever before and that's the investment back into the sport right from my perspective i wanted to interview you because we obviously have this similar network of people back home right yeah And, and i try to frame out the audience in which i'm trying to have this conversation be leading to and at the end of the day i want people i want kids to to see your path in which you went down and kind of get some you know conventional wisdom from and yeah i think that there's like a again there's a generalized abstraction out of a lot of these a lot of these topics and and learning lessons of how things work that there are little nuggets of knowledge and to, to completely eradicate that and try to be like, okay, yeah, you can't even, you can't even go on that because you're using your name for your benefit. It's that's, there's no freedom in that. There's no sovereignty. There's no, if you were incentivized to go and make a brand for yourself to the fullest extent, I guarantee you, like there'd be a huge wave behind it. And, um, I don't know. I I think it's an interesting topic nonetheless.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how you see branding in other sport and how you see it really brings the entertainment value to the sport itself. And that's another challenge that the NCAA is going to have to consider. And how do you want branding in like a WWE style where you get these back and forths? You might have to put a tamper on that. But I think an interesting story in the UFC, this talks about branding and basically how to make your income in the UFC rise. The story of Colby Covington is super interesting. It's come out over the past couple years, but Colby Covington is the the huge heel of the the UFC, right? He's the smack talker. He wears the make America great again hat, which is for some people very controversial. And he creates this, like, he wants people to hate them. This is an interesting story because Colby Covington was not this guy before. I mean, he was, Colby Covington had a successful, he was like 12 and one. He just beat, the number sixth ranked welterweight in the UFC and was about to fight Damian Maya, who came off of a title loss, but before that won eight straight. So, a very capable fighter. And the UFC said, Colby, after this fight, we're cutting you. We're not going to renew your contract. Your fighting style isn't interesting enough and the fans aren't engaged enough. So, you're talking to a guy that's 12 and 1, beat the sixth welterweight. It's probably fighting the third welterweight. And they're going to cut him even if he wins. Uh, so, he took a different mentality going into the fight. And he started talking a lot of smack and he the fight was in brazil where damien maia is from and he, he started calling like the brazilians the sewer rats and all of this stuff yeah. and it created this ultimate hatred around him because guess what people wanted to see him get beat but people wanted in that tune in to want to see you get beat are still people that bring in the money and then enhances his paycheck and it was a crazy thing where a heavyweight named Fabricio Verdum, after the fight, tried to fight him in the hallway and stuff like that. Like it was crazy. And the UFC goes, "Bring that, and you're you're on the roster, man." But that's that's right. exactly what they wanted to bring. So it, it just it's, it's an inst- it's an interesting way about how people make money off of branding. And again, I think the NCAA I mean, is going to have to regulate that. But it goes to show that you can brand yourself in such unique ways to make the money or to I mean, you know I mean, Jake- to.
0: I was going to say, Jake Paul is definitely doing that right now. He goes to the UFC event, and he's getting booed while he's walking. In. Jake, uh, Jake Hager, Jack Swagger is my cousin. He was the heel for a decade at the WWE level, and he was like, I love being booed. That means I'm doing mm-hmm. good. And and there's a benefit to the, everyone loves a good story. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. like people get bored without the story. And one of the benefits of having good versus evil is that you hate evil and you love good, but it sells, oh. right? Like. It's a story as old as time. We used to we used to watch Disney movies with that same thing, and the, these people are playing characters in which are drawing an audience. And I think that's the benefit of Conor McGregor. He's so good that he's got a good and evil side to him. Like yep. people hate him, but people also love him. And I actually think that th- those are the best characters in, especially in the fight scene. I think of the old school Mortal Kombat and all these different like caricatures, right, where they're like they have this pro side but then the character's got this evil side to him right mm-hmm. like this twist yeah. and you, you almost mm-hmm. and, and, and the best I, I truthfully think this and after reading a couple you know novels it's like the best characters the protagonists have a little touch of bad in them and they're fighting some evil thing but they're also fighting themselves and and not to get into that into the weeds too much about that but I think that there's a reason why we react to those storylines in our sports. And there's a reason why we hate the Patriots. They've done things to compete that have been proven to be wrong, but mm-hmm. they've also won. Like it still counts. It's a weird it's a weird paradigm where it's like how many people hate Tom Brady, but at the end of the day he still he still won. Yeah. Still got seven oh, titles. God. Like at some level you got to respect it. At this when he won it this year I was like, you know what? I respect that guy. I was like I was like, Yeah. I hate to say it, I respect that guy, but at the end of the day it's like for example, I wonder how much they did to get an edge, but is it really mm-hmm. cheating if you're getting an edge? I don't know, what do you yeah. I mean? I'm currently reading a a cybersecurity book right now because I'm going on Monday to talk about cybersecurity for my work on a podcast. And it's insane how much espionage is happening. I was like thinking, I was like, if this is happening between states and and countries and whatever, I can't imagine it not happening within competitive sports. Like you just have to, all you need, all you need to do is get a login into the environment and you could just see all the emails. You could see all of the different data Mm -hmm. on the, I I can imagine that being super easy for whoever to do.
1: Yeah. And I think it was sports, not even just like the cybersecurity aspect, but the cheating is you're never going to eliminate that facet of sport. There's always going to be people willing to take advantage of the rules to get a victory. And this can go, this actually circles back all the way to our amateurism discussion, because a lot of like in the Olympics, why amateurs were sought after originally is because they thought that, well, amateurs do it for the love of the sport. They have definitely, they generally have different careers outside of, Beat amateurs, because professional sports looked a lot different way back then. So the amateurs also had different careers. They weren't necessarily trying to become professionals. So they thought if that, that's going to be the purest form. There's going to be no other way to cheat the system because they're not going to want to cheat. That doesn't necessarily... Then there's steroid problems and all of this other stuff. Of course, they're still going to cheat. So like... And, and the people I are going to take advantage of the system, you no know, matter what realm you're talking about, whether you're talking about competitive sport, whether you're talking about cybersecurity, whether you're talking about just anything, people are going to take advantage of the system and find ways around things. And there's going to be, people that, I don't know.
0: That was it. There's the boundary of the rule and there's the boundary of the morality. And mm-hmm. I always think of Tim Ferriss in his four hour work week book, he talks about, he became world champion in this like combat sport over in Asia. And he basically won because he had cut weight. He, he literally looked at what had happened. He basically took what had happened in, in American wrestling, like amateur wrestling, basically, as in uh, regular wrestling. Yeah. And he cut weight. And then he, like, found a rule in which he kept winning. And he, he was a world champion in the sport. And he was like, technically, I didn't really cheat. Yeah. I just utilized what the rules gave me. Mm -hmm. And I found it in a perspective that's not like that. And it's, that's an interesting, that's an interesting concept, right? If you were so innovative to find an avenue in which you can perform in a sport that no one else has ever thought of. Yeah. We see it all the time. Sport, sports create new rules for people that obviously violate Mm -hmm. the rules. Yeah. Or, or find those loopholes. There's something to be said about that though. That's that that's I think the issue with what rules are like right in the first place, there's no silver bullet of a rule.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. No.
0: But at the same time, the complexity of the performer, I I just think that you're never ever going to get around that. And I think to take that up and do an abstraction of, for an example, a policy like tax law, right? Mm -hmm. I mean the the 1% of the people that are hiding their taxes, they're going to find loopholes around the rule. Yeah. It's, it's the same concept. At the end of the day, it's, if you're going to be in a competitive environment, selfishness will always supersede the selflessness or the public, you know, the public, uh, sphere. And we've talked about this before, uh, the, uh, disagreeableness to agreeableness factor, like in the personality trait and like how when you are dis- more disagreeable and you see this all the time in, in sports, there's kids that'll, that will argue with the referee just mm-hmm. to argue with the referee, and it's like, you sh- shut up. Yeah, You are you look dumb, right? That's the mm-hmm. extreme of the distribution. And then on the opposite end, it's something bad happened to you and you didn't stick up for yourself. Or yep. you're getting taken advantage of and you're not sticking up for yourself. You're mm-hmm. too agreeable. And there, there's definitely a play there in my perspective of, like, you can take advantage of the system for your selfish reasons or – You can also find the flaws in the system, which is a benefit to the Mm -hmm. system itself, too. I don't know. Yeah. What's your perspective on that?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think you see that in different domains. We could talk about the Olympics again in that domain in terms of amateurism, because once the same thing that happened in the NCAA actually happened to the Olympics before in terms of they had to commercialize. When you commercialize and start putting stuff on TV, you start to get superstars. And when you start to get superstars, you start to get endorsements, right? You, these super, people want to endorse these superstars with their products. But well, as an amateur, you couldn't take that. So what was happening is there was a lot of what the IOC president at the time called shamateurs, so sham amateurs, that were competing as amateurs in the Olympics but actually receiving endorsement money on the side. And I think you look back at it from this perspective and you're like, no kidding. If, if you saw... Uh, something like the Olympics and the IOC making money off of the Olympics through the commercialization and you're an athlete that can't get a $50,000 endorsement from a shoe company, so I think I support that athlete in going behind their back a little bit. And like you said, right. it pushes the mold, it pushes the actual system, the actual organization to better the, just to better themselves and better their employees, make a situation that surrounds their the company their employees needs. And I think that You start seeing that a little bit going back to the UFC. And John Jones right now is holding out because he wants more of a guaranteed contract. So that Kamaru got that $3 million guarantee with a lot of pay-per-view money. He wants more money right up front just in case something happens in the fight that doesn't quite go his way. Maybe he gets injured. Maybe something happens. It's a quick knockout. Or pay-per-views just aren't quite there. And so it's right, interesting there because he's trying to... And if you listen to interviews that he's doing right now, he is stating he's hoping this if he holds out for the betterment of the UFC in general and he never fights again in the UFC, but eventually the UFC starts paying their guys better, he considers that a win. so it goes back again to what you just said. People are gonna try to finagle the system or find ways around the rules or even maybe cheat sometimes out of morality or out of a good conscience to try to better their peers, right. better their their coworkers, which so, so that gets like it's super interesting because there's a really cheating yeah it's cheating towards the rules but are, is the rule that's established actually correct so i think that's the barrier you see a lot
0: no i think that this concept is one that i've obviously played around with in my head as far as as far as in its generality it's like it's like every crime is a protest right like, hmm. and, and this is one of the things i learned from reading crime and punishment by Fyodor dostoevsky it's like you can rationalize your way towards overstepping the boundaries of what is technically wrong and cheating from the societal mm. impact, but rolling it back in, it's, is it still moral? That's the key. That's the key point of it. And there's that disagreeableness to, to agreeableness that I think that happens between the private and public sphere. It's is something publicly good to where we all benefit or am I getting taken advantage from this public thing? And I think mm-hmm. for an example, for people who are dedicating so much to the sport of something that are getting taken advantage for the fruits of their labor. It's one thing to be, you know, I'm like, Oh, I feel really good for working for my company's growth. Yeah. But simultaneously, if I wasn't getting paid, what my fair share was, there's a disagreeable factor towards that. And I think the same Mm -hmm. thing is happening. Same thing is happening with so many different levels. It's like Aaron Rodgers right now, is extremely disagreeable on the terms of what his team has provided him. And it it makes him look like a crybaby. but Hey, he's got three, four years left, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not about money. It's not about any of that right now. It's an interesting uh, dichotomy nonetheless. I don't think that there's one way that's better or not, but I think there are extremes. I think people that are extremely disagreeable obviously tend to cheat more than others. If you Mm -hmm. think that you're better than the others or the public or whatever, you'll avoid taxes, you'll, you'll cheat yeah. in your relationship, you'll do all these different things that, mm. in retrospect, aren't good for the utility of everyone, where the opposite yep. is. If you're all about the public, then you're just sacrificing yourself for everyone and everything, and then you're never getting your worth of it. That's the kind of the interesting dichotomy for me, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah and Aaron Rodgers is a good example because, like you said, he's he's being a little disagreeable for himself, obviously, for the win, Try to get that super another super bowl win and extend his own legacy, but you also see like he's doing it because he he came after the general manager, he called him Jerry Krause, the the Bulls general manager. That if you watch The Last Dance, kind of was blamed for the deconstruction of the team that was won six championships and six finals appearances or something like that. I think what he's saying is he's like, This guy isn't giving our team a shot. I think for years, they people have been wondering, like, Where's that next wide receiver for Aaron Rodgers to throw to? They are there's always one, there's never quite the two, and. Is, are they not shuffling money around correctly? Are they dead? It doesn't seem like he has quite the supporting staff. Where if you look at Tom well, I mean, Brady, the,
0: the he, only he goes to. Pass, I was gonna say the only touchdown pass. Sorry, this is the bummer about online, but the only touchdown pass he's ever thrown to a first-round draft is Mercedes Lewis, and it wasn't even by the Packers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which is crazy. And if you look at Tom Brady, he goes to Tampa Bay, which already had a pretty decent supporting cast around him. And they keep bringing him guys. They draft linemen. They draft receivers. They bring in Antonio Brown. So you just see the difference. So again, yeah, he is trying to benefit himself, but he's trying to benefit the unit. That's why I step back, and I don't actually disrespect it at all. I think it's him making his final stand like, guys, like it's been years. There's been – you guys haven't put together the proper team. Whether you're doing it to try to save some money in salary cap and save money for – you and ownership which the ownership in that case is actually the fans but but still they're so they're still running a right. business or are you, are you trying to do it in that aspect or are you actually just tr- not putting together a team that he he wants so that's it's very interesting
0: you're right no that's exactly you see this all the time right and what i mean by that is for example in my organization like there's individuals that that feel like their worth is outside of what is being valued at and sometimes it's over projecting right like people are mm-hmm. out of their minds and i don't mean i'm not saying anyone in particular i'm just saying within a business scene in general it's an interesting it's an interesting point because some people come off as needy like i think a gr- good group of people or audience think that aaron rodgers is needy but at the end of the day he he sees what tom brady just went and did and goes i only have 3 4 years left i have only won one one and that guy's won yeah. seven. And that team that he was always on always supplied him with exactly what he wanted. And I think uh-huh. you're seeing that with a lot of Russell Wilson and all these other players. The value's there, right? The money's there. But at the end of the day, these players—they're—you so- can just see this in general, like in the NBA, like the unionization of these players, like their voices are being more and more heard because uh-huh. of this this democratization of the player and I'm sure this is one of the things that you probably study is like organizational structures of these different commissioning leagues Mm and different things to me it's an interesting point because it seems as though it's not so much about always money which I think a lot of people go shut up you're making 40 million dollars it's okay but when's the last time that you were unhappy about your job and it was about money right I don't know I don't know. What, yeah, for sure. I guess I don't know. I guess I don't necessarily know where to segue from that. But as far as why that happens, but nonetheless, I think one of my goals of this podcast is to create some moderacy of both ends of the spectrum on a lot of these things, mm-hmm. and a lot of private to public things are. I think, in my perspective, are primarily about agreeableness to disagreeableness. Yeah. With your learnings within school, as far as learning organizational structures, do you think it's helped you understand your place within the NCAA and like your potential desires of sports, or are you ready to just get out of sports? As far as like from a player's perspective,
1: (laughs) oh, from a player's perspective, it just goes to exactly what you say. Sometimes you almost have to accept the outcome, per se, you have to be a little agreeable. And just roll, go with the flow, because in all actuality, you don't have much power against the NCAA. I think you see this in various different domains. One is just the story of destroying the the, the punter kicker for UCF that created a YouTube channel that was getting monetized money through his image there, uh, it's and then eventually just right? got you said? yeah destroying yeah yeah and then yeah. he got banned from the university. And there's certain there's parts of me that I'm like, dude, I was just stupid of you because you knew the rule and you just went against it, whether or not the rule was right or wrong. But then there's part of me that's, okay, now there's NLIs coming. He would have actually been perfectly okay. So did he push that boundary? So in terms of, I, I know I'd be perfectly fine saying the NCAA, especially – with the steps that they're taking for student athlete wellness but I've all I have pondered especially after things like these track teams or just teams in general getting cut like the idea of a unionized somehow there's a players union involved that can speak the voice and for the student athletes and be able to negotiate for them because that's what you need in the NFL and in the NBA and I know these are professional sports leagues but in some capacity it should be brought down so that the student athletes have a fighting chance to voice their own opinion because you hear it in athletic departments all the time. They want to hear the athlete's voice. They want to hear the this and that and the other. Well, what better way than to create something that can negotiate for the athlete, get a percentage of something here or there, negotiate NLI, NIL stuff and all of this different things? Because in the NBA, in the NFL, you see these player unions that because if you think about it, there's no competition for NFL football. You can say, oh, there's this league that's coming up like the XFL. The XFL is so underdeveloped compared to the NFL. Nobody's ever going to say, oh, if, if they were to ha- happen to be like the same day, nobody's really going to – the NFL is going to win every single time. There's no competition. Right. Yeah, because there's just – they're not on the same playing field. So in that case, technically, the, the owners could be like, hey, all these quarterbacks want money nowadays. They want $30-plus plus million dollars a year. Guess what? We want to save money. How are we going to save money? We're just going to say, guess what? The highest amount we're going to pay is $20 million for a quarterback, and if we all do it, nobody can leave, we win. Well, with the players' union, you can't do that.
0: When you have a monopoly, essentially, and then you have specialized labor, it's much easier for those participants to be abused. And This is why construction industry is unionized, because once you develop a skill and you're very singular, it's really hard to displace into another market. I want to remain apolitical, and, and what I want to do by this is say, okay, the right says that tough luck. You have to go find another job. The left goes, yep. there's a job for everyone. It's, and that's not the reality. It's, mm-hmm. If someone dedicated their entire life towards the NFL and played for 10 years and got all of these injuries and can't go and do another thing, they have literally like brain injuries,
1: mm-hmm. and they de-
0: there's no... It, it, Nonetheless, it's like the NFL has to be at some level liable for the players in which it's utilizing its product for.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yep, exactly. Because yeah, right. people could say, okay, you don't need to be a football player, go do something else. Or, or, or take your talent elsewhere, for example. But that's not the case, because like I said, NFL is such a high product, that's where you're going to make the most money. And who are you to say, although it's professional sports and it's entertainment, like people just choose that as their career. So who are you to say, just choose something else? There has to be some accountability there. And I think like, a lot of good corporations that are private definitely still have that as well. But when you get to, or, or public, I should say, but yeah, when you get to like this unionized stuff, you have to defend the player. You have to defend or the union in general you have to defend those people a little bit because otherwise they're going to get taken advantage of like you said like how these nfl players that are walking away hurt they actually get taken care of by the nfl and that could be something that just wouldn't happen because if you're thinking constantly revenue i'm going to maximize revenue you wouldn't help those people out but the player themselves can't say hey i'm going to go to this other league that does that they don't have that opportunity so then it becomes like there's no competition there
0: it's a monopoly. Yeah, and, and
1: so, yeah. And like no. the thing with sports is that monopoly is allowed to happen because it's, it's so hard to create competition from league to league. The competition in sport is within itself. It's within the Minnesota Vikings versus the Green Bay Packers. And that's what makes sport a very interesting business because your competitors, you also need to survive. Right. So the Vikings need the Packers and the Bears and the Lions and the Saints and the, this to be successful. If they wiped out all their competition, there'd be nobody to watch football because there's no other person there. So the, that means the NFL is allowed to operate and provide rules for the game and provide all of these other things to to benefit that the, the sport, because it's competitive within within itself and it doesn't need out competition outside of the NFL. But in that case, they could choose to hurt the players. Since there's no outside competition, the competition is within itself. Again, like the example I said with the quarterback pay. So how do you regulate that? Well, you regulate that through a player union, the player association, the NFLPA. They're there to say it. they negotiate salary. So players get the certain percentage of the salary cap so or, or the revenue made. So I think now it was over 50%. Now I think it's under 50%, but the NFL is making more money. So the players actually end up still getting more. And that's negotiated through the CBA. So the NFL and this happens in other sports, the MLB and the NFL or the NBA, basically like they don't want the court system doesn't want cases all the time through the NFL, NBA and MLB. They could care less. They don't they, they don't want the oh, wow, the Saints cheated. We're taking it to the court system to try to figure this out. They don't want that. The court system is already clogged through probably a lot other things that are better than just public entertainment and sport so these leagues are allowed to govern themselves and they do that through a cba a collective bargaining agreement so they write out all of their legislation they govern themselves so roger goodell is the overseer that gets to almost be the judge and say hey tom brady you did this well i'm giving you a four-game suspension but since they can govern themselves there also has to be that balance somehow and that balance is the player union they go into collective bargaining Saying, hey, we need this for the players, we need this for the players, we need this for the players, and some things they get, but they also have to sacrifice in some way. So, for example, the last CBA that was actually just, I think they just negotiated that either after the season or before the previous one. So now the NFL is at 17 games. That that that's right. a rule that just right. changed. That the players hate that. Why? Because well, their current contracts, if you break it down from a pay per game perspective, now they're worth less. They have to play right. one more game for the same amount of pay. They're so like, screw that. But I think they ended up negotiating more, like, a larger Salary percentage.
0: Ba- of, I it was- yeah,
1: like, just a larger percentage of the pay, so they the players would get more. But there's always a give and take. So, like, the players give, the players give, but they also take a little bit from the commissioner. And so, it's, it's weird. So, yeah, now they have 17 games, but they have the ability to make more money. So, it's kind of like, and how does that get negotiated through the player union. So I think that's generalizable because I think I was very not anti-union, but I almost didn't understand unions and they seemed, dumb like why would you need these things but now you understand because if there's something super specialized that could easily get taken advantage of you need somebody there to say no you can't take advantage of this they actually should deserve their worth which we're here to negotiate for
0: it's much more specific like you can write a, a round of rules to do it. if you're a specialist that enters in data super easy to automate there's so many barriers in that field in which like, let's say you do something for the next 30 to 40 years. I think of truck drivers. If the truck driving market becomes automated, there's going to be a ton. It's like one of the biggest job markets that's now going to be displaced. And the right says, mm-hmm. okay, you're displaced in a new market. Learn how to work on the automation. It's like, well, not so fast. Like, plasticity and the limitations of the human do not allow for that. It's right in theory, but the reality is, like, people who yeah. never... And this is something I do within my work. It's like, I have to train people in on technology that have never grown up with it and they're in the construction industry. And I can't imagine one of the largest markets of employment being automated because it's, they're specialized. So again, this is one of Andrew Yang's points. It's the truck driving market. If it gets automated is going to cause a huge revolt because or of unionization. It's the same thing with Ubers, right? Uber driving became the the more automated and more efficient way of taxi cab services. And you saw all these big taxi unions and the whole yellow cap that was happening in New York or whatnot. But I never thought we'd get into unionization, but I think it is a good point of specialization and some of the issues with it. But there's also a need for it. And there's, especially within public goods and entertainment, the things that we all mutually agree that are public goods, it's like we, we would much rather have the NFL than not have the NFL. Oh, exactly. Bottom line, right? Or I think of, obviously, my mom's works at the post office, and the post office originally was like the Internet of information distribution. That's a public mm-hmm. good. We all agree that the world is better because we need to distribute information between and amongst, amongst individuals. So yep. the government goes, okay, we're going to subsidize this service so that we can all use this, well yep. now the internet comes along, and that service isn't needed, but there's so many more people that still utilize that service, so many businesses, yeah. so it's a public good that's the in in the libertarian would say then that business needs to die because it's actually a waste. but the reality is we don't all adopt the newest and biggest thing like that.
1: no, absolutely not,
0: and that's my sympathy towards specialized trades and 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 things i still think trying to generalize out your skill set and learn broadly actually is more secure than becoming the everyone thinks that once you become specialized you're secure you're the the radiologist that can do that one thing that no one else can do you're done it's people now in radiology are getting replaced by cameras that can see shades of tumors that are not perceivable by the human
1: eye. Yeah. And and then for example, then yeah, like you said, maybe the argument would be that become the technician for that equipment, but that's two different skill sets. Like the truck driver to the guy working on the automated truck, two different skill sets. Like the person that went into truck driving went into it for a reason generally. And to just say the transition to the other form of your job that takes a whole different technical skill is, I I I think it's just wrong to assume.
0: And we know the plasticity of people after the point of 30 years old is for the most part non-existent, right? Like yeah, for the most part, our habits are, and it's not to the downfall of people's will. It's just to the downfall of getting to be a parent, getting a job that you've done for 20, 30 years, doing the same thing over and over again. You, you We talked about this, the plasticity of the brain after mm-hmm. the point of 26 is is non-existent because people typically resort to doing the same things over the the rest of their life so i think of a bunch of 60 70 year olds that are truck drivers and then trying to tell them to learn how to code like in theory that is the bet that that's a great way to displace the market i just know from my my experience of trying to train in older populations into technology adoption it's a huge hurdle you know.
1: Yeah, for sure. You wrote, wrote an article based on technology adoption. I helped right. you edit it a little bit, but I think it's a good thing just to discuss here and now, like that is so much easier said than done. to Just say, Hey, here's even how many, how much problems have you had personally just with teaching people how to run their email? Something so simple that I'm sure you probably account. You probably have to do that maybe once a week, maybe a couple times a week, months, month. something so trivial. Now do it with coding or even just with PowerPoint, with Excel, with all this extra stuff. So like you said, like the technology adoption aspect just isn't realistic. And I think you firsthand have now seen that and can convey that in a much more concise way than most people can even like understand, which I think right. is, would be an interesting point to build on.
0: Right. No, I think that this is a great point in general, because I always tell my mom, I it to Lisa, I was like, God, if I, cause I'm, I'm essentially a business analyst, a lot of what I do is try to automate processes and systems. And I was like, I can't believe your job isn't a kiosk by now Yeah. in in irony. What I mean by that is it's she's really good at her job because there's a value there it's like people like human services and especially the older, the populations that are still using the post office. It's a great ratio in which the people that are using the post office to disperse information are also the ones that need the human interaction. Otherwise they would just, otherwise they would just use the internet Mm -hmm. and maybe someday it gets to that point as new and new generations are like more and more demanding of online services. And I I think of my peers, they'd much rather probably use an app to order a pizza than call on the phone. (laughs) Like, I think that's a a general theme, but I know my grandparents, they like to call on the phone and have service with someone that can talk to them and walk through that thing with them. Yeah. um, Yeah. It's it's an interesting thing. I think that the human to to technology perspective is going to be an interesting one moving forward as, as AI becomes so good that you when you call a phone for tech service that you can't even tell that it's not a human. Like there's yeah. already companies that are already launching things that are like that, and mm-hmm. I'm always interested in that because you hear it a lot. Like people are like, I don't like talking to a, a teleprompter that's telling me to push in numbers, right? My perspective, I'm like, it's cheaper than paying someone to just answer the phone and who wants to answer the phone just to answer your questions that are basically of three options anyways. Yeah. Yeah. So you're automating a lot of jobs. There's such a a back and forth with that. I, I think we're just talking about the general concept of automation, but I don't know. I think the complexity of humans can be much more utilized than rule-bound, hey, I'm answering the phone, hey, I'm entering stuff into the computer because someone needs help with it. I think people don't want to be dishwashers. Yeah,
1: yeah. Right? There's areas where where the human emotion, even if it's the emotional response, is valuable. It's more valuable than, like, than, like you said, being a dishwasher. So automation, on, on the automation that's happening, yeah, maybe it makes sense in certain areas like phone conversations or like when you call up yeah like you said i press one for this press two for this but in other aspects like I think even as a human being myself if I were to walk into a doctor's office and it was somehow highly highly automated I don't know how, we're not quite there yet but if I was I would be a little sketched out because I don't get to interact and talk with the doctor. I think a lot of the doctor's experience, I was at a doctor's office just yesterday, and it's like just the reassuring aspect that they give you by going through the different here's A, B, C, I'm just gonna walk you through everything. Like it calms you down personally. Like imagine just this is what we're gonna do and yeah. It's so I just think that human emotion aspect is probably one of the most valuable things that we provide beyond automation.
0: Yeah. I've read a lot on this, right? So this is what, I mean, this is probably one of my more expertise area, but there's the Moravec's paradox where the computation that's needed to do what computers do versus humans is actually disproportionate. It's a paradox. Like Mm -hmm. the sense, the sensory motor skills and the emotional capacity of what humans can do takes way, way more computation from a computer than what a computer can just do within just running a, like a math problem, right? Like rationality, yeah. reason, et cetera. And so there, there is a good paradox there. And I think right now we live in an age where, and even doctors do this now. You go to the doctor's office, you sit down, and they're actually interacting with the computer and checking boxes of your symptoms. And yeah. something is projected then of options for them then to diagnose you with. And mm-hmm. I think more and more, and I, I see this in a lot of professions, the whole mortgage uh, industry, right? You're essentially just entering in three different categories of information. You're entering in what your credit score is. You're entering in what your income to debt ratio is and your income. Like, like, those are all things that you, that are just, you enter those in and then it kicks out a, based off of an actuary table, of whoever's crunching the numbers technically is giving you then an interest rate based off of your risk value. But for some mm-hmm. reason, there's a lot of people that are in this, mar- this mortgage market that are reassuring other people on buying homes. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's like what actually, you're just feeding into a, a set of rules. Mm-hmm. And those are the professions that I'm interested in, like how long those will last. Because for me, it, it even, even in law stuff, like, And like Andrew Yang had said, like he went to school to be a lawyer and he's, I realized how rule bound my job was and how really there's software now that does what I was doing at an administrative low end level in law school. And it just, it's an interesting point. I think what is on the front end of a lot of these, a lot of these sales tactics type of stuff will be like the tactics will be automated and then the strategy won't be. And that's the human Mm -hmm. aspect. But I'm worried that there were so many people that were all tactics driven that made them look good. That Mm -hmm. now that the tactics are automated, they are not going to know the difference between strategy. And I think that's what I'm talking about, this generalization. Mm -hmm. If you automate the tactics and then you focus completely on the strategy, and that's one of the things in range. Yeah
1: to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm hearing this properly, basically the idea of the tactics is like the process. Am I getting... right? I, right. So like, like when somebody doesn't reasoning. know... Yeah, when somebody doesn't know, understand the process behind something, it might greatly take away even the strategic aspect because they don't really know how it's running. So if you're just running this through programming, you're actually taking a big part away from that person's experience and ability to grow in that field, thus making that particular job or occupation less relevant because it's actually not really going anywhere and it's also just a lot less reliable maybe even more reliable because of automation but it's less I think I don't know it's just less important I think
0: an example is when you automate the tactics within a chessboard and it shows all the options of what you can play in the the different variants it actually equalizes out people like like for example world chess players because they were so focused on tactics and they, they were always just like myopic and short-sighted of what the best tactic was next, and then you automated that process, it actually equaled out the playing field for just average players. And, and what I mean by that is that once you automate out the specialized tactics of potentially what the next move is or whatever, the deductive reasoning, then you get to this abstraction level that I'm trying to play on within this podcast is what is the best strategy based off of general pr- principles and there's a danger there right like it's like playing with fire because just because it works in one domain doesn't mean it's safe to work in another like i don't I don't want to yeah. translate private and I don't want to translate Aaron Rogers to a political issue for sure but, but for it sure. but it helps define the scope of the abstraction nonetheless and
1: yeah And it it almost brings light to why there is an abstraction there, right? Right. Like in different domains, you're getting uh, different results or different opinions. Like the same person, me, might have a different opinion on the same thing in a different from one domain to the next. And it proves why this abstraction exists and why it's so hard to actually find a solution because there really isn't a solution because there's not a universal solution to all of this.
0: There's not a silver bullet, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, which makes all this these topics worth worth discussing and even talking about and picking people's brain on because so many people have different perspectives on the same thing. But also when you transfer it over to just a different domain, you can find parallels, but there's also so many differences that make you step back and realize, oh, wait a second, maybe I actually agree with this or maybe I disagree right. with it in this aspect.
0: And also those abstractions help you, if you learn something, you can attach it to that that large personal theory that you have, like
1: it's an, it's another test. It's another people always,
0: people always go, you remember all these facts of the different things, like from sleep to the the economy. that's kind of the point of why I wanted to do this podcast. It's I want to talk to a bunch of different people that have a variety of experiences that I find as generalists, but also specialists and utilize their conversation to come back and forth between what they do. I know the general abstraction and back and play with that back and forth. And I don't think that like directly any podcast has done that. I think one of the the top end podcasts that do that from like Joe Rogan for example, he'll go from having Ben Shapiro on his show to having Bernie Sanders on his show, right? An extreme an extreme distribution of ideas and thoughts and is still able to to pull and kind of flirt with those different topics. And I think there's a good utility in that. I think it also plays along with And I'm not trying to to pump up Joe Rogan's podcast in any means. I'm more just saying that there's a huge space for this right now in the information age. I can go and talk to someone who's completely unrelated to you and and still pull on the similar themes, which I think is really cool.
1: Yeah, I think it goes to show how maybe even like more moderate or even generalized we are. Yeah, you could go take, I don't really know what the opposite of a specialization in like a shot putter athletics is but maybe it's something deep into business or something over there in the other professional realm uh but you can actually get the same thing i feel like a lot of like a radiologist
0: for example
1: right yeah yeah a lot of life lessons i've learned although i've learned a lot of life lessons through sports i've actually learned a lot of things that i've applied to sport or other things through people that aren't athletes at all maybe that athlete if you hear it from an athlete maybe it relates to you a little bit more. Maybe hearing it from like a David Goggins, who is more of this. He definitely competes in a different in athletics as an ultra marathon runner. Like it makes it stick to you more. But there's so much more value in a different opinion as well. And I think that's what's also interesting is integrating different forms of information, different opinions, uh, different strategy into your own specific realm. To see if it works. I think that's where kind of some revolution happens. Yeah. And like in the yeah. sport of shot put, if you want to even break down the sport of track and field into mm-hmm. individual events, so the two different throwing events is the shot put and the discus. Well, there was one discus thrower one day that said, what if I actually just do the discus technique in the shot put and see what happened. And now that's the premiere technique right. in the sport and the ones that have taken, have got the furthest distances in, the, in, the, in terms of top 10 distances. Most of them have been this technique that actually moved over from a different event, which is pretty interesting. So you can take that even more general. It's,
0: that's one of the most succinct ways that I could have wrapped up this podcast in some regard, because I, I firmly believe this, that I, would, I was a primary, I was a project engineer to start with and I moved into the IT space And the analogous things that I've learned from different domains, I've been able to construct a more uniform and and better practice, I think, from my perspective. And Mm -hmm. I think if you've only done one thing and you've only done it one way, you have a cognitive bias that only allows you to do one thing. And I think from you have you looking out, but then you have people looking in on you. And I think we have a human problem. And I honestly, I'm going to end it with this. And I think that we are, we're extremely reductive in our society nowadays to where you specifically are only the one primary thing that you are known for. So it's like, mm-hmm. you are the shot putter, John. And like that is a great thing to obviously to bolster it and, and have on the hierarchy of who you are. Mm-hmm. But it also degrades exactly who you are in general yep. from, from the variety of things that you've learned. Like You, you have a strong understanding of different things that you've learned and how that'll translate into your next path forward. And Mm -hmm. I think that we have a strong reductive issue. It's more of a reductive issue and then maybe we generalize it. It's okay. Mm -hmm. You're a big, strong, massive guy. That means that you're a meathead. It's no, that's not, that's not the case at all. And I Mm -hmm. think we have this issue from racism, from all these different perspectives of it's a human issue. We reduce people down to a one single variable. Mm-hmm. right so like you're the lawyer or you're the it guy or you're the shot put guy and it's that's not the case like these people have such a general rounding and that's my objective of this is to yeah to obviously expand on who they are and what they are and then try to round them out and i think this podcast for an example obviously showcased that to anyone who ever even thought they knew who you were right yeah for sure for sure yeah i i had a good time i think we just wrapped up on two hours it went pretty fast i definitely, I definitely
1: appreciate the opportunity and it's funny because i feel like you and i have these conversations quite often we just don't record them so it's kind of cool to be cool to see the interpretation from others that they have on our conversation because like i said i feel like we've done this probably hundreds of times it's just this is the first one we have recorded
0: four views and it's going to be our grandparents and moms. Oh yeah.
1: Hey, but that's a, it's a start though. And I think (laughs) like in in your perspective, I'm sure you're going to learn a lot from even just putting this out there and putting it on. And the next time it's probably going to run more smooth because I know that this is not going to be like the end of the, of your podcast. I think it's just the beginning of what could be. And I think that's pretty cool. It's going to be cool just to see it evolve. If it gets four views and maybe I'll come on, two years later and it might get a thousand or two thousand or I think it's a cool it's a cool thing. So I appreciate getting the opportunity to be the first and to get to see where uh this whole thing goes. And I think you started it off really well and molded this podcast into what you want it to be. So it's gonna be cool to see.
0: If anything it's gonna teach me how to listen.
1: yeah that's not a bad thing you you have to learn eventually thank
0: you and if you want to keep following follow my page and i'll probably cut these up into little segments that all you facebook friends and people can watch so thanks